Welcome to the World Architecture Festival podcast, sponsored by the Forest Stewardship Council, the world's most trusted sustainable forest management solution. Get your project certified with FSC to assure that the wood used in your project comes from well-managed forests. This series features recordings from the annual festival. Hear from architects discussing the latest innovations and challenges within the industry. Subscribe to always receive the latest episodes and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at WorldArcFest. Please welcome Liz Diller uh, as the final keynote speaker for WAF 2019. Now, many of you will know something of Liz, but the record of achievement is phenomenal. She is one of Time's 100 most influential people. Um, she won the first MacArthur Genius Award for architecture. Uh, she's a professor at Princeton, and not least, she's also a visiting professor at the Bartlett at UCL. Uh, she is, of course, one of the founders of uh, Dilla Scafidio and Renfrew, a multidisciplinary design studio, or art and design studio, based in New York, but working internationally. Um, the number of projects she's done, or the range of projects that she's done, is extraordinary. From exhibitions, such as Exit, uh, an exhibition about global migration, developed from an idea by Paul Virilio. Um, uh, an exhibition on fashion and the Catholic imagination for the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. Uh, and then there are the pure artworks such as Blur, which was a sort of cloud on a lake in Switzerland. And I remember, Liz, you may remember this, we went to see Anthony Gormley and you bonded with him over making mists in clouds. Um, but, uh, and then there are the big landscape or urban projects like the Zayeda Park in Moscow. Uh, and then, of course, a phenomenal series of buildings, and I'm only going to pick out a few. The Education Center for Columbia Medical School, the complete remaking of the Lincoln Center, one of the premier arts venues in New York, uh, the Broad Art Museum in Los Angeles, um, and then these just keep coming. Projects like the High Line, one of the most significant sort of urban projects in New York of the last few years, um, which then develops other projects because uh, being a mile long, it was a suitable setting for the mile-long opera. And then, of course, at one end, the northern end, is the extraordinary shed uh, 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 arts venue. Uh, she's also working, or has, ju has just finished, uh, the expansion of the Museum of Modern Art in New York. And those have both opened this year, so her lecture is going to focus as a sort of year-end lecture on achievements of the year. But there are some ongoing projects of significance too. Uh, the London Concert Hall, uh, where the uh, conductor Simon Rattle is uh, a big influence. In fact, it's rumoured that he only came back to London from Berlin because he was pro promised a new concert hall. Uh, and then... Uh, uh, an archive and store for the Victoria and Albert Museum uh, on the Olympic Park <coughs> in uh, West London. So that's just a taste of what she's done. We're going to hear, as I say, I think primarily about the, the projects of this year, um, but I'm sure there'll be allusions to the creative process and other uh, insights into how Liz and how Dillis Cofidio and Renfrew work. So please welcome her to the stage. Thank you so much for that introduction. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, and like all um, occasions to speak on one's work, um, there's a kind of cross-section of your mind at that time. 
And, um, and I've been thinking about um, just, you know, a sort of incredible coincidence of um, doing two um, very sizable and important um, cultural projects uh, in New York that are physically um, 26 uh, uh, blocks apart, um, so very close together. And uh, at the same time, they couldn't be more different from one another. Um, MoMA is in Midtown, it's right in the middle of Midtown fabric. The shed is in a new, brand new development that's just gone up over the, um, uh, the Hudson Yards. Um, the MoMA is a renovation expansion uh, of um, a building that uh, is uh, since 39, um, so with many uh, iterations and expansions along the way. Uh, the shed is a brand new building. Um, MoMA um, is an established institution, one of the uh, most prestigious in the world. Um, and the shed was not an institution until very recently. It was a building before it was an institution. Um, MoMA has a vast collection, the best of uh, con uh, modern contemporary art, um, and the Shed has nothing, it has no assets, um, and in fact it commissions new work, and that's its identity. Um, and these two projects have um, kept me pretty busy. I wanted to start with MoMA, um, and, uh, but go back to, um, actually, that's the wrong it's the wrong time. It should say 1989, I, 1989, I think, not 2003. But um, MoMA, um, um, my first encounter with MoMA, and, and when I say uh, my, I also mean um, Rick Scofidio and my, and then it grew, my partnership grew to involve Charles Renfro and uh, Ben Gilmartin and a great uh, group of collaborators. Um, but this was very, very early on in our careers. We were invo uh, invited to MoMA uh, to do a, a new uh, project, a new installation in the projects room, which is the only part of MoMA that, um, that MoMA doesn't know exactly what you're going to do. So you basically sign a contract with them and they don't know what's happening until it finally happens. So they, there's no way that they can say no or object. Um, and this was a... Um, for us, going to MoMA, we were critics of the institution, uh, generally of any institution. Um, it was a really big deal, and this was a time when um, uh, there were a lot of artists that were uh, think cr thinking critically um, uh, about, um, it was called the institutional critique, it's uh, quite over, but um, I think it, it um, is still very present in my mind. Um, but there was a reflection on something like the White Wall, and uh, Brian O'Doherty um, had written this uh, seminal text, and, and the whiteness of the museum was equated with power and, um, uh, and rewriting and scripting from scratch and the voice of authority and so forth. Um, when we were invited to do this project, we were thinking, okay, what do architects do stepping into a museum um, and able to do anything. Um, I think the curator um, had imagined that we would put uh, drawings on the wall and models on a base, but we didn't do that. So we wanted to make an installation. Um, this was called Parasite. And um, we mean parasite, or we meant parasite in three different ways. One um, is as a kind of organism that feeds on another organism, this installation on the institution of MoMA. 
um, a, um, a guest to host relationship where the guest earns welcome, uh, their welcome by flattery. And the third, which is the French definition, which is creating a kind of uh, interruption in a, in a communication, an electronic communication. Um, and we felt that this project could sort of do that by interrupting the gaze. And, um, and, and so we had these surveillance cameras up everywhere over the um, entrance. I don't have very many slides of it. I pulled what I could. Um, these um, cameras were stationed just above the uh, entrance doors to MoMA, and uh, they were just gripping uh, the, the ceiling, almost like, like bugs, um, and looking straight down and, and capturing um, everyone that sort of went through, and then, um, and then broadcasting them back into the space. Um, and this kind of um, sort of surveillance happened at every threshold, and the idea was the sort of um, think about the significance of the institution, the threshold between municipal space and institutional space, um, and um, semi-public space and more private space. These were more cameras, and they were capturing uh, people going up and down. Um, but the, the main thing I wanted to mention here was that the wall, the white wall, was sort of um, at stake. So we weren't going to just put something on the wall. We were going to use the wall parasitically scraping into it, holding it, um, uh, cutting it. Um, and uh, moving into, so I re reversed my slides. This is now 2003, where um, we are asked to do a retrospective at the Whitney Museum. Um, and this is the Breuer building, uh, uptown Manhattan. Um, and we have a fairly large space. And we were asked, actually, by one of the curators is Aaron Betsky, who is a juror that's deliberating right now on the fate of some of you. Um, anyway, um, he was one of the curators, and he asked us to bring in some of the installation work that we had done, um, you know, all over different, different places. I managed to, when I was organizing this talk the last day, um, sort of find some pictures of some of the things, but there were, there were many more, and so, um, it was a retrospective, and when you know we thought retrospective, looking backwards at a body of work in one's career, and we felt well, we were just starting out, and there's no body to our work. It's all fragmented. It's all site-specific, um, and what what is what does it mean to bring it together in one place on one floor and have something meaningful said about it? Well, so we came to this project critically, and decided that it was, there would be an Uber project, and that project was the division between these various uh, micro-installations that we put back up, um, and those divisions, those white walls, those museum walls, would be sort of the protagonist of the new installation. We, the retrospective was inside of an installation, let's say. Um, and the primary component was this drill, this uh, robotic drill that you can see on the left-hand side. Um, it was just a standard hardware store drill that rode up and down on uh, this uh, vertical rod that went back and forth on a track. Um, and its brains were on the very top, and it was programmed to randomly drill holes through the wall. So basically, it's unfolded all the walls. So you have 300 linear feet, 100 meters. Um, and the program was to randomly um, uh, uh, drill holes in it. And 
the drill became a kind of nuisance, an acoustic nuisance and a visual nuisance. It also produced dust. Um, here's the drill. Um, and we worked with Honeybee Robotics, who were the engineers for the, um, uh, the Mars driller. So looking down at the drill, these are the brains. Um, and the red dotted line is the uh, movement uh, that it took. And here, And you always sort of heard this, and it was that sound was there to make sure there was nobody in the way. Um, and so it would just um, uh, find a location that it hadn't built, been at before, and it would make a hole, and then it would just keep going. And this ended up being. Um, something like a three-and-a-half, four-month four performance. Um, and we had a lot of trouble in turning this corner. I think if we had it to do over again, we could have made a better detail. You'll see in a second. Yeah, there. That was not elegant. But nevertheless, it worked. So by the time the show in its third, third month, these, the wall was starting to come apart. So you can see and hear through it. Um, and what was started off being a nuisance really started to break down those separations between the projects. Um, and it even started to um, uh, obliterate the curatorial text, that is, um, the, the text of uh, Betsky um, and, and, uh, and, and Hayes, the two curators. Um, anyway, so we were thinking um, about the wall continuously thinking about the white wall. And for this project, we wanted to put the wall of another institution in the wall of the Whitney. I don't know why, but we wanted to do this and it was just at the moment of the um, transition uh, between the Pelly building, the end, you know, the, just the beginning of the Taniguchi, um, um, I think I might have spelled Taniguchi wrong, but just at the beginning of the Taniguchi, um, uh, 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 transformation, and we wanted to take, you know, there were the uh, collections galleries were cleaned out, they were emptied out, and we wanted to just um, identify um, a, a piece of a wall that was important, and this piece was um, behind this painting, uh, uh, Duchamp's Standard Stoppages, um, and this was an important painting, it was part of uh, the Bright Strip Bear, and um, we're just sort of obsessed with all of the work that went into the large glass. Um, and this um, had to do with uh, you know, a, a, a process that was uh, rather random of dropping a meter long string, one meter uh, from, uh, from the floor, and making templates from this. Anyway, um, so we selected, we talked to the director of the museum, um, and we selected this particular spot, we were able to figure out it was now the headquarters of the um, contractor that was making this Tanaguchi transformation, and um, we were able to sort of clear the way and get their buy-in to taking a piece of their wall, out of their wall. Um, and I think for, uh, for me, I'll, I'll say that what's important about this is that um, when we think of the white wall, it's fairly neutral, you know, and that's why it's been so important in, um, in modern art, such an important uh, sort of 
um, backdrop because it says nothing, it does nothing, but it's filled with this um, sort of sense of authority. But I felt that there was uh, some kind of um, special aura on the wall, just behind this particular um, Duchamp piece. Um, and those are walls that never actually breathe air or see the light of day. They're always hidden by something. And so here we are um, removing this piece after carefully surveying it and uh, cutting it free. And then we brought it to um, we brought it to uh, the Whitney, and there it is uh, on the right. You could see the brighter, because the difference of the whites is that the Whitney white is different than the MoMA white. MoMA white is brighter, and all the layers of paint, you know, I don't know, 100 layers of paint um, uh, are on it, so it, it elevates the thickness. So now, this drill that was picking random points on that wall when it got to this Duchamp part of the wall, it started to behave in different ways. I don't know how it did that, it just sort of did it. And this was um, a sort of, you know, this project is very important to me um, because there's just so much history here. Then 2008, what happens in 2008 is that MoMA asks for um, that wall back into its collection. Now, we don't really have the wall. We cut it up into pieces, and we saved um, like two by two foot pieces and gave it uh, as souvenir to friends. And so we gave them that piece of wall that we had left over, and they installed it in, it's now in their collection, and they installed it in this show on fragments. It's just very weird, you know, this relationship to MoMA has been so, um, strange. So I'll, just as a kind of sampling of MoMA has always been very much sort of in uh, my brain. And um, moved to 2013, all of a sudden MoMA had asks us to come and interview for um, their new expansion. And, um, and, and, and to make a long story short, this was a really sort of complicated moment. Um, and we were very critical of MoMA, and we, in the interview, we gave them every reason to not select us because we had all sorts of problems with MoMA. But then we realized that those problems may be solvable, and maybe an architect could help them to do it. So we somehow we got the project because of our criticality. Um, but you know, coming into MoMA now with an architectural focus, very different than more of an arts-based focus. Um, so here we had to be generative and not critical. And starting with um, MoMA originated in 1929, was the first museum of modern art um, ever. And at that time, modern was not a historical movement. It was really contemporary. Um, it starts in this, in this uh, townhouse and then that's replaced in uh, 1939 by uh, Goodwin and Stone's uh, uh, first building, and then Philip Johnson adds to it, uh, of which one of those wings survives. He also adds the sculpture garden, and in 1984, Caesar Pelli uh, builds a tall tower, commercial tower, and changes um, a lot of the inside, and then um, there's also, and this is in 2001, this is uh, chronologically, um, there's a building built by uh, Chen, Williams and Chen, um, that figures into this story. 
Um, it, but it has nothing to do with MoMA. MoMA um, actually bought the property of this building because the tenants ultimately left after 12 years. Um, then the Taniguchi um, expansion happens, obliterating some of Caesar Pelli. And then Jean Nouvel arrives and does his tower, and MoMA then has um, basically the lower um, uh, level of those two buildings, actually just the, um, the one of Williams and Chen and Jean Nouvel. But I, I made this highlight around all of MoMA because it actually touched everything. So um, the uh, project was an expansion, like in, in adding an arm to a body. You can't just add it, you have to change the brain and the heart and everything. So we ended up changing a lot. Um, and this is the sort of timeline of expansions of MoMA. It keeps growing and growing and growing. It finally ran out of FAR, um, no place to grow into. And um, who knows, maybe they'll buy the church next door and, um, and do something with it, I don't know. Um, but the way that MoMA was when we came, it was very transactional. The interface between the public, the city, and MoMA, there was a store that was largely decaled, you couldn't really see into it. The entrance was hard to find. Um, it wasn't very celebratory, it was kind of a tube of space. Um, and again, very transactional, you buy your tickets, it queued up, um, lots of queues in here. And, um, and art was very far away from the street. You could walk a half a mile until you would see a piece of art. Um, and then crowding and um, a lack of understanding where you are. So um, there are several things we wanted to do. One, expand um, MoMA to show more of its collection in new ways. So this is very important because MoMA has a huge collection. Its galleries are very small in the last transformation, the last expansion by Taniguchi didn't leave enough galleries really f to expose enough of its collection. But MoMA curators today are thinking in a very different way than they used to think, which is departmentally um, across, you know, along disciplinary lines. So there's painting and sculpture and photography there and design and architecture here and film over here and photography and, um, and so forth. Um, they've changed. Now they're working across disciplines telling new stories of modernism. So the spaces that would allow them to do this um, and get rid of the, dis uh, the uh, di discipline-specific spaces create a better interface with the city, um, which is that transactional thing that um, makes it feel um, like, an, like an institution and remote. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, bring art closer to the street um, and actually pre-ticketing so you don't have to pay to see everything. Um, give more agency to the visitor. Don't necessarily go in a conga line chronologically from the beginning of modernism to contemporary. Um, and make good on some of modernism's aspirations, and that is, um, you know, we look back on modern, modernism. Is it a finished project, a project? Is it really unfinished? I think it's kind of unfinished. There are many things to come back to. There are things that we come back to critically. Um, utopian uh, dreams that didn't uh, uh, get realized exactly, but there are many things that are still out there. Um, when we started, it was very negative publicity. Um, uh, this is just a sampling New York, New York Times, a museum with a bulldozer's heart. So this small building that was only 12 years old by Williams and Chen had to come down. 
and it's a very complicated reason, um, but the expansion, in order to ma make the expansion work, um, it needed to have uh, it needed to have a, a circuit. Otherwise, the expansion would lead to just retracking your steps uh, back from the uh, old space into the new space, back to the old space, the same way that you came. Um, that building had been abandoned for many years because uh, the, um, they moved away. They couldn't use the building. There were uh, the board absconded with uh, resources. MoMA bought the site and wanted to tear it down. And so we had to live through this real crisis period. And this is the building. And so the Tanaguchi building is to the right, the shiny black. And the open site for Jean Nouvel is to the left, that open site. Okay, and these are some of the uh, headlines at that time. This was one of the hardest things that I've gone through, is taking down a colleague's uh, building and, or being part of that. Okay, now on the positive side, we were able to expand MoMA's uh, galleries by 30%. We were able to make it intuitive in terms of circulation and do some of the things that we had hoped to do. Um, when you look at this image, I don't know how to... Uh, anyway, um, there's a part of it I'm going to just show you. Um, it's, uh, oh, I, I, I could be heard. Um, it's everything on the small footprint going all the way up and down is the Williams and Chen, and everything here is the expansion space. Um, and so the, um, everything else is, is, are all the pieces of MoMA that we had to touch to get anything um, to work. So I'm going to show you this little animation. And then I'm going to try to speed through. Okay, so um, this is the, um, the Durrell Stone building. By moving some of the infrastructure, we're able to make connections to circuitry that was um, cut off in the past. We're able to um, make a proper lounge, expose a part of the um, entrance to the garden. Um, we were able to transform that whole entry sequence, um, take some of the housekeeping um, off of the, the center, the axis of entrance, um, that was a place to be for art. Um, we depressed the store by one level to make a double-height open space and uh, made the ticketing off, off the edge. We made a street-level gallery in a projects room which had disappeared in the last uh, renovation of MoMA. Um, and uh, so a movement in multiple directions to the west where the expansion was a new... Um, uh, entry space by removing a media gallery to make a double hide space. And um, let's see. And then we, were, we added one core to the west, um, which allowed all the circulation to now work and for people to disperse. That's one of the biggest problems that everyone had at MoMA. It was just too, um, too crowded. Uh, and so this is, um, these are some of the, uh, the galleries that we transformed. Everything uh, in blue are sort of galleries that we changed a little bit or a lot. This new stack of galleries in the Jean Nouvel building uh, at the very left on the west, and a stack of uh, double height and new galleries that fit right in the middle of the building that had to be torn down. 
Um, there's an, also a new curator for performance who are able to do that, um, to accommodate um, uh, a theater space, um, as well as a double height projects room, as well as street level galleries and so forth. So, um, so this is a little bit of a, a diagram um, just showing um, this stack of tall and short galleries which were imposed on the curators and I think they're very happy with them now. But um, the gallery system works. These are just some shots of, um, um, we did this project in stages. We finished parts in 2017. This is on the east side of the building. Um, this uh, bringing down the Bauhaus stair. Um, Bauhaus, that's the Oscar Schlemmer um, uh, painting of the Bauhaus and the stair that was demolished in, in one of the uh, expansions, we um, brought back with a new language, and there's a lot of stair strategies uh, all over the new building. Um, big argument about um, like restoration or renovation or new, new build all, all through this project. Um, the new entrance, which is just a skinny blade of steel, um, that hangs over the street. Um, uh, steel is pushed to the edge, um, ticketing off to the side. This is the store. Now you can, from the street, you can see clear through uh, to the lobbies um, and uh, with light and um, just a very, very different atmosphere. Uh, from the street, you can look into MoMA before you were not able to do that. Um, this is the west stair, it, we call this the blade stair. It's super thin, it's only three quarters of an inch in uh, steel. Um, the glass just cuts it, it severs it, and that's how it's cantile cantilevered. Um, it's suspended, this entire uh, stair is suspended uh, six stories, so it totally floats. Um, and so this is a little bit of the uh, unfinished project that we're just playing with some of the materials. Um, modernist materials, but in a new way. Um, and here we are with um, some of the galleries. And the galleries are really functional galleries. They're white walls. Uh, typically, some of these double-height galleries where you can um, um, walk through one and see half the floor of another uh, displaced. And here's another example of that, looking into the performance space where David Tudor's work was. Um, and there's been a lot of conversation about um, MoMA's um, integration of um, uh, sort of modernism of the 20th century and contemporary work. So sometimes these are juxtaposed and um, it's, it's caused a lot of stir among art historians. Um, so there was that negative press, now miracles on 53rd Street as MoMA reopens New York Times, celebrating uh, MoMA and, um, and uh, basically a lot of um, very good sentiment around this project. And you know, we had been, for so many years, we had been um, thinking that um, this is, you know, we, we had to just stop the noise to do our work and we didn't expect anything. And now um, it seems like it's very well accepted um, and it feels uh, very different. Um, now, by contrast, the shed. So the shed, um, uh, is sort of, um, uh, I, ha well, I have to sit situate it in a kind of historical story that um, uh, sort of post-Civil War, um, New York imports its arts, its architecture, really from Europe. 
Um, and this is a great moment in 29 where um, MoMA opens, where New York all of a sudden is thought of as an innovator, a cultural innovator. And this uh, post-World War II, also Lincoln Center, is the first time that uh, performing arts came together in one place. Um, and we were fortunate enough to be able to do the uh, transformation of Lincoln Center as well. We've been very, very lucky. So coming back to the shed, the shed is at the northern edge of the High Line, one of the northern legs. And I can't talk about the shed without talking a little bit about the High Line because it's there largely because the High Line has also transformed the area. So this was the High Line before when we came. Uh, it was still meat packing and meat of other forms. Um, and it was, you know, it was really somewhat depressed. The meatpacking industry was leaving, um, a lot of sex trade there. But it was lots of open parking lots. And um, the, um, the property owners, the developers there, um, wanted to develop their property. They thought the High Line was horrible. It was a detractor, and it devalued their property. So they wanted to tear it down. And, um, it was these guys, these young um, uh, citizen activists that were under 30 at the time that were petitioning to save the High Line. And um, one of the arguments was that, um, that a park um, uh, sort of adds to the potential um, uh, regeneration or growth of a city. Just, it's the same argument Frederick Law Olmsted used um, in Central Park, and uh, we know how how much the city grew around Central Park. Um, this guy was the mayor. He's in the news a lot these days. Um, and he's, so he uh, uh, signed the court order to demolish the high, the high Line, you know, under pressure from the developers. And he's been wrong before. <laughs> he continues to be wrong. Anyway, the High Line um, was built. Yay! <laughs> Thank you. Um, and it, uh, it was very transformational um, to the area. It really regenerated the area. Um, and James Corner and Pete Udolf were great collaborators on this project. Um, and we, it, th this project for us was about almost protecting the High Line from architecture. Um, and uh, we used what was there. You know, there were these spurs. We just made a sort of a deeper hole in what was already there. Um, to open up to a view of 10th Avenue so you can look at uh, the traffic. I don't have the video here, but you can see the traffic going down. So it's really a place about doing nothing. But um, some of you may have been there already, so I won't go through that. But what happened was when we argued for um, the High Line, um, we uh, said that that, the, uh, that area needed a green asset. Um, and 400,000 people uh, would be there every year. And um, last year, there were 8 million people. So it was, its success far exceeded our expectations. Now there are really hundreds of High Lines happening all over the world. Um, so I think something really interesting happened that in a time of limited resources, in a time where we're fixed to our screens, that there's something that's kind of global about the desire to go out into public space 
and, um, and to think about sustainability in a, in a way of rethinking what we already have, regenerating our cities, even some of the dead infrastructure. Um, so this is also what happened, um, uh, five billion in real estate investment. So New York City made a $150 million investment in the project, um, it was mostly rehabilitation of the, of the toxic soil that was there. Um, but it, it made so much, and a, a billion in tax revenues uh, in 20 years, lots of new jobs and, and so forth. But what happened also is the High Line became really built up. It became gentrified, and it happened very, very quickly. Um, and so this halo effect on property, um, uh, start, these glass towers started to shoot up like stalks of grass all around. And there was no control because these properties that Giuliani thought that were um, without value, and this would have been developed anyway, but it was developed in a particular way with a highline that really made the prices soar. So the gentrification of the area and these tall buildings made us, in a post-occupancy way, want to do something on the highline that was different than being its architects. We wanted to make an opera on the High Line, the length of the High Line, and it was a biography of seven o'clock. It's called the Mile Long Opera. And it was the contemplation of this past that could never be retrieved, um, and this future that we were very apprehensive about. So one was nostalgia, one was this apprehension about the future. There were both sort of uncomfortable feelings, um, and, but, and it was meant to be a sort of connection into the hyper-present of New York. Um, the idea was to dis, disassem uh, uh, disassemble the opera as a kind of uh, 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 stage, uh, stage production uh, you know, behind a proscenium. Um, the 1,000 singers um, were brought in to, um, uh, to, and they were dispersed throughout the High Line, and the public basically walked through them. Um, and the music, David Lang was the composer, and uh, Claudia Rankin and Ann Carson wrote uh, the words that became the lyrics. They were both poets. Um, and this biography of Seven O'Clock was very important because how do you do a critique of um, this, um, this issue um, without making a treatise, without, uh, but, but how do you do it poetically? Seven O'Clock is the moment uh, every night when this uh, opera was performed. And uh, it's also the thing that we remember, that moment in the day when day turns into night, when dad comes home from work, when dinner is served on the table. Now, that doesn't happen really in today's family. It doesn't really happen for most people, for most cultures. Um, homes are broken. Um, nobody eats dinner together anymore. Um, seven o'clock means something different to everyone. Um, the piece was um, about... Now, I'm not sure how I organize this. Something weird. Um, I've, I'm missing a whole lot of slides here. Um, now I'm wondering if I have the right slideshow up. Uh, but there were these um, you know, fantastic singers. I hope I have the video, yeah. Okay, or you can get a sense of it. So, um, so uh, just to move, because I have to move quickly. This piece, um, I was the director uh, producer and uh, creator of this project, along with some of the artistic collaborators. It was one of the hardest things I've ever done, and it's 
Um, I, I speak about this a lot. I've never done an opera. I've never done anything like that of that scale, independent work. Um, and now I fully believe in doing things you're unqualified to do. Um, but it's, you know, it's the same sort of thing. The Friends of the High Line saved the High Line. There were two young guys. We just did this because we wanted to do it. We felt it had to be done. We had no institutional support. Um, okay, moving on to the shed. So the shed sits at the northern edge of the, uh, high, at the High Line. Um, and um, now we're looking at 2004 when this begins, this project. So much uh, long, you know, many years after MoMA, uh, or before MoMA starts, um, we're responsible for the High Line there, the shed and the tower that's there. Three different clients, one for the city, one is an independent non-for-profit startup, and the tower is for a commercial developer. And you could see these towers now, how the eastern part has been built, the western part is, uh, is to be built very soon. It starts with an RFP, a request for proposals from the city. And uh, we respond, this is in 2008, the height of the uh, financial downturn. So um, the idea of coming up with, you know, basically it was cultural facility. There was just a box. Everything else was commercial developed land. This is the one place that the city owned and would maintain ownership. And they were looking to do something cultural, but they didn't know what. And no institution wanted to expand. So we put forth an idea, and we were working with David Rockwell at the time. And we said, there are over 1,200 uh, cultural institutions in New York. Well, why should there be one more? And we felt, well, you know, there's no place in New York, New York is very siloed, um, that, um, that actually brings in the visual arts and performing arts under one roof. Um, there's no space that's truly flexible. The only flexible spaces are lofts that are fairly generic. So how do you make flexible, non-generic, significant piece of architecture um, scalable space? You have more space when you need it and a space that's indoors and outdoors and also has a different sort of paradigm, financial paradigm. Um, the only sort of example that we could look to towards this uh, pro flexible project for a future that we could never predict is um, the um, uh, Cedric Price's Fun Palace. Um, and this is basically the idea of the building, a static building with multiple floors, with large spaces for galleries without columns, and this movable outer shell that moves on tracks that expands when we need it uh, to, to make big shows, large installations, large performances, uh, or events, but could also uh, nest back on the, um, the original, uh, the, the uh, static building. This was one of the first models. Um, and it can um, uh, open up uh, a new pu a public space where there could also be cultural events going on. So these two structures, a frame, traditional frame structure and the steel structure that came down on six points um, and that had a very long span and in that truss, that was a, a, an occupiable truss that acted as a theatrical deck, the entire surface of the, um, the space was theatrical uh, was a, you know, and was occupiable so that you can fly anything in, everything was strong. Um, and here's uh, from the model, you can just see. We made all sorts of, um, uh, uh, we expanded the proposal, the city kept encouraging us, but there was no money. 
eventually the city became interested, and that's a whole other story. But then we were asked uh, to, to do this tower next door for the commercial developer, and we thought, hey, you know, maybe we could take advantage of being the architect next door and arguing with ourselves and winning both sides of the argument. So we did here. We built this tower, and we made the lower 10 floors the back of house for the shed. Um, so that could never have happened otherwise. Here's the exploded diagram. The high line is at like plus eight meters. Um, there's a mezzanine below and the um, uh, entry and lobby below. And then there are uh, two galleries and a theater and uh, event and rehearsal space and the shell. And everything in the small stack there is um, back of house. Okay, I'm going to show this animation because this animation was able to raise a lot of money for uh, the shed. So here we are. We put this thing on the table. Um, there's no institution. We are working as architects independently. About three years into the project, the city asks for a business plan, and then we provide something that's like an architect's version of a business plan. Um, and then we start to work with the city to really evolve um, the sort of intelligence behind the project, but we're still very much on our own. There's still, really, there's a client that's a chairman building a board. Uh, by the way, this takes five minutes to open, and it takes the horsepower of one Prius engine. Um, so um, uh, it's not until 2014 that Alex Poots, the fabulous um, uh, our director comes in. He was in charge of the Manchester Festival, so he's the artistic director and CEO. And there were some tweaks to the building to make it even more flexible than we thought. And here, I'm going to scrub through it because I'm running out of time, and I want you want to show a little bit more of it. So um, there are a lot of things. It could do a lot of things. It can black out. It, you can see films in it, it um, can control sound, um, you can have fashion week in it, and you can, uh, you can see how it opens up, you could have a concert outside, you can have um, installations outside, and then I'm going to move through this guillotine doors that open up and down 10 meter high, um, also the gallery space opens up, and here we're drifting now into that um, upper deck where all the equipment is, where um, it makes for simple operations in and out, quick and um, uh, inexpensive. And I'll just end with this. Okay, so then you could see this. Uh, and then folds up and it opens up this space for um, outdoor gatherings. So um, now moving into the construction of the shed. So here it is. Um, it has the kinetic system, has uh, the drive sled. It's a, um, it's a very, very simple um, rack and pinion on top with just steel wheels at the bottom. You could see the size of the motors next to the man's hand there to the left. There are six per side, the size of the wheels. Um, this is the forging of the steel wheels and the bearings and the, uh, the building of 
the shed. So this was amazing. It became an independent non-for-profit, and now it is called um, The Shed. And it, is, um, it has a board, it raises money, it, it sells tickets, and um, it's fully operational. And um, it opened um, in April, and MoMA opened in October. Um, this video we took when we were um, commissioning the movement system, and so you could see a little sped up. And so um, the shed is now, this is the tower. It's a sort of square that morphs into a cloverleaf. Um, this building docks. The, the buildings are... Um, now a kind of ensemble, even though they're for different clients. Well, okay, the horror of the Hudson, Hudson Yards was not very well received. Um, the shed is somehow left in this argument as the only reason to go to Hudson Yards, um, the most hated new development. It is really big and it's, you know, I can't really say because these are clients, but it has been really, really difficult and too tall to, um, uh, planning is not, not ideal. Um, so, um, and a playground for 1%, uh, an art center for the rest of us. So this has everything to do with the intention of the shed is to open up um, the arts, is to bring people together, different audiences together. There are $10 seats on every level, first level through the last row on every uh, theatrical performance and, and concert. This is some of the early programming and I'm I'm just going to take you through this, a, a series that opened um, on the history of African-American music in, uh, in the States. Quincy Jones and Steve McQueen curated with a, a historian of African-American art. Um, young, um, unknown uh, talent, all like five concerts uh, through five nights. Um, each artist, 10, 15 artists each, chose their family tree and sang who they were influenced by and who those influences were influenced by, coming all the way down to slave songs and so forth. Very emotional, very, very beautiful way to open. And um, also opening was Reich Richter Pert, um, two contemporary composer, or composers that are actually in their 80s right now, Gerhard Richter paintings um, and uh, wall hangings all sort of together with video, and it was uh, extraordinary. The beauty of Alex Putz's programming is he brings people together that normally don't work together. This is Renee Fleming, the uh, great opera star, doing the story of Marilyn Monroe with Ben Wishaw um, and Bjork. So high, low, um, uh, visual art, performing arts. This is Bjork. Um, this is Dragon Spring. This is a kung fu musical didn't go over so well, using the height of the space in a very acrobatic way. Street dancers, um, this is an open call to young emerging artists where their commission works every year. And now Agnes Dennis is on view, um, the great environmental artist. Uh, William Forsyth just finished um, a run and uh, Arca had a sort of very strange performance. Um, and Requiem, which is, uh, um, you know, a beautiful was, uh, Verdi's Requiem with uh, Theodore Kretzis, um with a huge chorus and, uh, and beautiful um, uh, orchestra that came from uh, Russia to do this. 
uh, piece. And now the Times, you know, receives it. I'm, I'm very interested in how the press, can the shed redeem Hudson Yards? Well, that's not its job. It's not about that. It's contributing to the culture of New York. And, um, but you can see how this, we cannot, geography is destiny, we cannot undo where we are. But it's only because of where we are, because we were opportunists, that we stepped in and said, let's use that space for culture, we have a new idea, and even though there's no client and there's no money, we're gonna make an idea that's interesting enough for, um, for people to, uh, to invest. Um, and there was a lot of sort of funny criticism, this was, uh, group of industrial designers that made a dildo out of our building. I don't know how you use it, frankly. Uh, <laughs> anyway, so this is the shed, and I am um, I'm almost done. I just wanted to show you the timeline for this. So the shed uh, begins in 2005. The city um, secures this piece of property for a future facility not yet um, uh, to, or to be defined. And for us, design starts in 2008 when we begin uh, by winning this RFP. I don't think anybody else submitted. Um, and we continue to design the building. And the institution in yellow gets formed in 2013. That's when it becomes a non-for-profit. It's a legal entity. And we get a contract for the first time to do work. Um, and then the programming, and the programming programmer starts in 2014 and commissions new work. And um, this is very, very important because this is an example of how an architect could be there first with an idea and then um, sort of propel a project um, forward. We were at the right place at the right time. This is, by contrast, MoMA, MoMA's timeline uh, that starts in 2014 and uh, the design and the programming are happening at the same time with the curators because they don't really know what they're doing either going forward. Um, so that's sort of what I, and I'm not sure I have a conclusion except 2019 um, has been a very, very important year for us. There's somehow we got to do these incredibly important projects. I don't know if we'll ever see projects like that again in our lives, um, but um, we now I am the um, audience uh, for these projects um, as a New York citizen, um, and um, it's time to look at other cities. Um, but this is a reflection. Maybe if I could tie it back to the beginning of the um, uh, of what I started with being anti-institutional, starting off with a critique. Um, it's a way, especially with the shed, and even MoMA, by moving that oil tanker a couple of degrees, changes the whole thing. But the shed, a totally new institution, new building, new everything, this was um, an opportunity to um, really inflect kind of future of the institution, rather than from the outside uh, lobbing grenades, from the inside, um, making, getting consensus. Thank you. Well, Liz, thank you so much for that. I um, don't have much time for conversation, I'm afraid. Um, but there are a couple of points I'd like to make. One is, I think MoMA, you know, amazing institution, your criticisms valid and notwithstanding, it is still an amazing institution. But one thing it's done is to in institutionalize modern art. Mm -hmm. And of course, it did that famously with modern architecture, with the Hitchcock and Russell exhibition which created the term the international style and sort of 
took much of the social agenda out of European modernism and put it on the side so that the Rockefellers could enjoy it, mm -hmm. <coughs> who, of course, were the funders of MoMA and much, many other cultural institutions in New York. Um, but I, 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 th I think one of the things about the shed is that it's very hard to see how that could be as aggressively sort of defining about what contemporary art is as MoMA was, partly because MoMA drew on the tradition of galleries which have evolved since Soane in the early 19th century. What you're doing is something that is going to industry, and it's looking at the very essence of modernity, which is perhaps can be found in industrial production. Mm. Well, okay, so the, the building itself, um, I think, makes a mark, mm. you know, and it's stimulated by some of the uh, sort of industrial sense of the place that it, that it sits with all, by the way, Wow. With the High Line and with the rail yards, active mm. rail yards for 38 trains that are moving there, and it yeah. just um, somehow the idea evolved out of there. But, but more specifically, it was addressing the fact that, um, you know, and I will go back to Alfred Barr yeah. because yeah. he was the one that sort of set the tone for MoMA, these departments. This was, was the first architecture and design um, department in any, of any museum mm. um, set in MoMA and all these other curatorial departments that were equally uh, important. And I think there were so many new things that happened, the white wall, the, the uh, um, even though, yes, it had been around, but MoMA sort of did institutionalize it. It institutionalized um, a lot of those isms, you yeah. know, and it wrote the history of modern, uh, 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 modernism. Um, um, which it now comes back to critique itself, yes. you know, by scrambling everything. Um, the architecture of that building works with the triggers that are there. Um, the architecture of the shed works with the triggers that are there, but it really touches on um, no, no inheritance of those, yeah. um, those isms or even the disciplines. We just acknowledge that artists are working across disciplines, w working with um, scientists and mathematicians, and um, there are politically there are many political agendas. There are just so many different things um, that culture in the future can be. Um, how do you protect this piece of real estate? That was the big issue um, from development, and make a space where artists can re-script it over and over and over again. And that was the sort of the Cedric Price uh, inspiration of the, an architecture of infrastructure. Mm. But I think one of the interesting things about it, uh, you were saying it's coming out of what was there. And part of what is there, of course, when you're dealing with contemporary art, are those overlaps between choreographers, visual artists, performers, musicians, composers, poets, all of them really looking to performance mm -hmm. in many ways. And, and that is as fecund a ground for the creation of cultural significance, I suppose, uh, as the idea of a museum of modern art was in the 1930s, which would be a way, ultimately, of making a market or making a discourse which could be closely related to a market for modern art. Yeah, well, I think that's what, you know, w one of the things that, that happened, that, that you bring up the word market, mm. is that, New York, um, that you know, in the 20s, in the in the late 20s, 30s, across the war, and 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 particularly at the time when I was educated mm -hmm. in the 70s, um, it was a place of production. Yeah. Um, artists lived there and they worked there, 
um, and you thought of uh, New York as a, uh, as a place um, that's very stimulating culturally. Now it's a place of um, the, mar the art market, yeah. and it's a place of consumption. And one of the intentions behind the shed was to actually make a place where things are made new. Yes. And it's so, so there is a, a kind of um, uh, reflection on what has been lost in New York. Sure, sure. A couple of quick concluding points. How about another opera? The biography of, of 10 o'clock, you know, the, the time when, when museums open for the, for the shed that can be performed there. Yeah, um, you know, it's, it was just such a learning, uh, I'll, I'll do one at every time. Yeah. <laughs> it was such a, a fantastic experience, I have to say, it was yeah. one of the hardest things I've ever, ever done. Um, and I, you know, I learned um, everything from what it means to produce, to raise money, mm -hmm. to find rehearsal spaces, to control other creative people that I had to keep all in balance, yeah. to uh, agree with the city to close a city park mm -hmm. for many nights in a row, to have an ambulance um, around, you know, in, in case anybody had a heart yeah. attack, to figure out how to ticket yeah. this thing. Yeah. So it was just a, a, a really, you know, a fantastic experience in doing something that had never been done yeah. in a big way. And um, I just, you know, I, it, it, it was also, for me, it was a chapter in the High Line because I was there as a witness yeah. to something that um, my studio had unwittingly created that uh, was both great and also scary. Yes. Um, and how do you, in a post-occupancy way, you know, you come back to your project and you... Well, what can you do about it? Well, this is a th kind of thinking project about what it is, and it was beautiful yeah. um, the way the audience connected with the yeah. singers. They were as close, each yeah. audience member to every singer, the, as close as we are to each other with eye contact. Mm. It was a very, very special moment of uh, sort of a community in New York yeah. uh, that makes me want to do more of it. Well, I'm going to conclude with uh, an imagine imaginary sort of scenario that you're a pupil in a minor English public school and you've got your end of term report. And the a rather pompous headmaster will say, Elizabeth, because I'm afraid that's how you'd be referred to. As by my her. mother, yeah. perhaps, <laughs> when she was angry. Um, yeah. uh, Elizabeth has had a satisfactory year, <laughs> and she will, but she will have to be careful to make sure she keeps up the improvement next year. So... <laughs> Um, I hope you will, <laughs> but thank you very much. I'm going to hand it back to Paul Finch, who's thank going to conclude you. the festival. Thank you. Uh, can I add my thanks to Liz Diller for uh, giving such a stimulating keynote uh, talk. It's a great way to end the sort of formal proceedings of the festival uh, here at the Rye. Um, for those of you who are not coming to the awards dinner this evening. Um, travel well, uh, and we look forward to seeing you next year. Um, those who are coming, well, I'll, I'll see you later. Uh, but on behalf of all the WAF team, thank you so much for being an appreciative and I think optimistic audience over the last three days. Good evening. Get your project certified with FSC. For more information, visit fsc.org forward slash architecture and follow FSC International on social media.